I want to just mention as we continue, um, we're in this series in the book of Revelation and um, in the Welcome Center and on the foyer there are notes if you want them. Um, we'll keep producing them and you can keep taking them or leaving them, whatever you want to do. Um, but I, I've been thinking about this this week. Have you ever met someone or talk with someone and they've used this phrase like my word is my bond. I heard that growing up by different people. Like in other words, I'm so trustworthy and true. If I say it, it will always be true. Have you ever met someone who used that kind of phrase only for you to find out that they were lying to you? It happens, right? The reputation becomes garbage at that point. Why? What we can understand, reputations matter. So think about all the different places and ways that people have different reputations or even businesses. Right? I, I remember a time uh, when McDonald's was trying to not be known like as just like junk food. They were, they were like producing salads and all kinds of other... I don't know if McDonald's still makes salads. I don't know. Maybe they do. But they were trying to be healthy. Healthy McDonald's sounds like an oxymoron, right? Their reputation had been set for decades, but we're going to produce salads now and we're going to be healthy. Um, I don't think you can even buy a salad there anymore. I think they gave up on that and said, that's not who we are. Right? Because the reputation had been, had been decided before that. Or maybe you remember a place you went as a kid? Remember a place you went and you just thought it was like the most beautiful place, so big, right? maybe grandma's house, wherever. And then years later, you go back and you're like, huh, I thought this place was better than that. I thought it was bigger. It looked different than I remembered. Right? Maybe you've done that. Or maybe you have like aspirational reputation, like you aspire to be something more. Like I, I use this example. Um, I usually take a group of buddies on a golf trip every summer. And so I, I call a different place, see what kind of deal I can get. And I call a place in Michigan, it's called Tullymore. And I call them and said, hey, can you make this kind of deal? And they're like, um, you know, no, we can't do that. And I was like, well, you did it a couple years ago. We've come here before. And they're like, yeah, no, can't do that. And he said, we're the number one golf destination in America resort. And I said, really? Have you heard of Pebble Beach? Um, if you don't know, Pebble Beach is probably the number one golf destination in America. Really pricey, right on the Pacific Ocean. And the guy's like, oh. And I was like, well, that's an aspirational reputation. You don't really have that reputation. You just wish you did. And, and we have reputations in all kinds of other ways. And so I was thinking about how um, athletes get a reputation of either being a clutch performer or a choke artist, right? You get one or the other. And often what you do early in your career dictates what it is forever after that, right? We have some athletes like a Steph Curry or LeBron James or Peyton Manning who may have lost some big games early and so that, oh, they're a choke artist. And then later in their career, they might win, but, but that stigma kind of stick, sticks with them. And then you have other people like a Kobe Bryant who wins early in their career who honestly missed a ton of game-winning shots, but he gets to be known as clutch. And actually, here's the crazy thing, right? Arguably the most clutch athlete of all time is Michael Jordan. In his first 10 years, he didn't win big games. Funny how that works, right? If you win enough of big games, you get this reputation. If you lose enough, you get this reputation. And it's in all kinds of things. But the truth is, for most of us, those kind of reputations we don't really care that much about. We do care about the reputation of our coaches and our teachers and our mentors and our parents, and our friends. Those reputations do matter to us. But here's the reality, that sometimes reputations outlast, right? Reputations outlast the reality. You've heard of businesses, right? We, we talk about years ago, Ford and GM for a long time were like, we're the great car companies until all of a sudden they realized their cars weren't that good, 
Right? And they've had to spend the last couple decades really working to improve that. Right? Reputations sometimes don't exist in reality. But what might we do for us? What do we do when, like, a coworker, they have a reputation with our boss as being a hard worker, but reality, we watch them and they don't work that hard. They're just really good at working hard at the right moments. Or maybe that's us. Maybe that's our reputation. Or maybe there's who we used to be as a person, right? We know who we used to be, but we've been living into that person. We've been trying to become a new person, but to those around us, they still see us as who we used to be. Our reputation has preceded us, and we're trying to figure out how to change that reputation. Because here's the reality for all of us. Um, Even if reputation is fake, like the coworker who doesn't work that hard, eventually all reputations are found out whether they are true or untrue. Eventually, what's true begins to see the light, and we have to find ourselves in this position. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because sometimes, right, there are people that have pretty good reputations, and then you get to know them, and it's even better. You're like, huh, that's pretty cool. Sometimes they don't, they don't let us down. They're actually greater than we ever could have imagined. But here's the question for you and I today. What is my reputation? It's a question I have to ask myself as I was thinking about today, right? You might be saying, what is, what is your reputation? What, what is your reputation? What is my reputation? And that led me to a second question, right? What is the reputation of our church? Like in our community, what do people think of? What do they say? Not just like, how's it look or whatever, but, but what is the reputation of the people of this place? And then I started thinking, well, not only what is the reputation of the people of our church, but what is the reputation of the church? All right, here's the problem with these questions. When we begin to think about what is the reputation, we go, oh, are those true? Well, it doesn't matter, because you and I don't get to pick what the reputation is. We don't. Other people get to pick what the reputation is over time. Now, we can influence what that looks like, and here's the problem. Uh, Today, we're looking at this church in Sardis from Revelation chapter 3, the first six verses, and the church in Sardis had a reputation, but reputations are formed not just by the church, but by the community in which they live, by the people that they are. What we begin to find as we look at this letter in the context of the whole of the book of Revelation, the entire book was written to seven churches. Seven churches in Asia, and each church, is, the letter is written to a particular place and people, and they're trying to all wrestle with a very similar question that you and I are trying to wrestle with. And here is the question. How are we faithful to God's kingdom in the midst of all the kingdoms of the world? How are we faithful to God's kingdom in the midst of all the kingdoms of the world? That's the central question that each of these seven churches are trying to wrestle with. How are we living as God's unique people where we are in the world? Are we following Jesus so closely that we're more shaped by his kingdom or by the systems and the communities in which we live? It's the question they're trying to wrestle with. And so each of these churches is wrestling with this question. The book of Revelation is one of those weird books where people kind of freak out and like, I don't know what's going on. Well, here's the point. Um, If I was going to summarize the entire book in just a couple ways, here's what I would say. The whole book is good news that God is redeeming all things. God knows what you and I are going through in the communities in which we live, and God promises he will be faithful to whatever it is we are experiencing. And the call, the challenge is for the church to be faithful. 
So he writes these particular people in particular places at a particular time in history. In fact, each letter is written to the angel or the spirit of a church, right? And so it's not like there's some floating embodied spirit up here in the sky, but each church by not only its people, but by its architecture and by the way it meets and what it does has a kind of a spirit of a place, right? We talked about last week and before, we've all gone in places where it just feels kind of oppressive or wrong, or we've gone into other places where it feels like really cool and you're so glad you're there. Each of those can be true because it's a spirit of a place. It's defined by the collective whole of a people, right? If you had gone to some of the college football games yesterday and, you know, you went to um, a game and your team won, the spirit of a place would feel pretty good. If you went to a college football game yesterday and your team lost, the spirit of the place would feel pretty down and oppressive, right? The energy, right? All those kind of things. So a church is no different. It's defined by the people or the whole. And so the question for us is, what does it look like to be shaped by that spirit? And so the letters are all written to these churches going, hey, we think we can reshape the spirit, but let me tell you where you are and maybe where you want to go. So all of the seven letters, two are really good, the rest are bad, this is a bad one, and to the church in Sardis. But like every church, like us too, churches are shaped by the communities in which they inhabit. So Sardis was a city in Asia, one of the oldest, most storied cities in all of Asia. It was the place that modern money was created. It's kind of cool. Right? In fact, um, it was a crossroads of all these ancient roads, and so it became this great center of commerce, and, and it was really, but it was up in the mountains. And so it was incredibly protected by all the natural surroundings, right? And so the people there, um, they, they thought they were impregnable, like they, no one could get to them. Like, we're awesome, and you can't get to us because look at these mountains in which we live. The problem was, two times in its history, in 549 and 195 BC, um, raiders climbed the cliffs. Because you know, you're not going to climb the cliffs. But they did, and the city was sacked twice. Not once, twice. You would think you would learn your lesson after the first one. They didn't. Um, In fact, it became the city that was synonymous with the dangers of overconfidence, pride, and arrogance. That's the city of Sardis. It was incredibly wealthy, great commercial town. It competed with Smyrna to, to create a, um, a, a, like to be the first place really that worshiped Rome or Caesar. We've talked about how in the book of Revelation, often the temptation was the worship of, of the goddess of Roma. And so the, the challenge for the people was to not just embrace that culture, but to be their own unique people in the midst of the world in which they lived. And so here's what we would say about Sardis. It's a city, its reputation, its best days were probably behind it. It's the idea of the city who became like rich and fat and lived off its reputation and kind of became lazy over time. That's all helpful as we look at what what John wrote to the church in Sardis. And here's what he wrote. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, 
I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Begins with the words, you had a reputation of being alive, but you are really dead. Right, this letter, unlike many others, mentions no persecution, no heresy, not even opposition. It's a picture of a church that's kind of proud and bored and living off their past and going, well, do you know, um, it's the kind of church in which we would hear this phrase often, well, we used to, in the good old days, That's not how we do it here. You can go on and on. The list is long about what you could say in a church like this. I was trying to think how I would would say, like, uh, William Barclay says it this way. This is a church that had peace, but it was the peace of the dead. It's this idea that these people are kind of daydreaming and walking through life. They're sleepwalking. I was trying to think how we would articulate this in our day. Right, we've all been in major cities, or even our own cities, and we've seen large churches and downtown spaces. And they're beautiful. Some of them are starting to fall apart or erode. And some of them, if you go to on Sunday morning, they're vibrant and they're people. And other times you go to those same churches and there's no one there. They may have hundreds of seats and a handful of people fill their pews on a Sunday morning. Look at what we built. Look how great it is. I talked to a pastor recently who pastored in, in um, kind of historic church in a community and they had millions of dollars in the bank, but like 30 people went there. And I'm asking, like, he was trying to do some kind of innovative stuff in their community because they knew they needed to breathe life into this place. Uh, and he kept getting no on everything. We can't do that. We can't do that. We, d- we don't do that here. They were sitting on so much money, had such opportunity, and they chose to do nothing. This is the church of Sardis. We're really good. We have done really cool stuff in the past. We are innovative 50 years ago. But because it worked then, it's going to work today, and so we're going to keep doing what we did then. And not like out of this kind of faithfulness to to, to tradition, but like kind of this idea that, ah, everything else, we just got it right here. And so they lived on their reputation. But not just the church can do that. We can do that too. I have a reputation of being this person or that person, so I'm just going to, people already think I'm that, so I, I can just coast. I can sleepwalk. I can daydream. I can be lazy. On and on it might go. In fact, uh, what I'll say is this, what, what we find in this letter to the church in Sardis is this, you and I never know when we're going to take our last breath. None of us know that. Right? We really don't. We have no idea when we're going to take our last breath. And that's not to say, like, we should live, like, scared. That's not my point. But we should live with, like, a holy sense of urgency that God has compelled us, that we believe that Christ died for people and that matters, and we're going to live in such a way that we're going to reflect Jesus in all that we say and do, and we're going to recognize that is the most important thing in our life. Right? Here's one of the challenges when we read the book of Revelation, right? Um, Sometimes, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, but, but sometimes people work really hard to try to figure out all the right answers of how the world's going to end. That's crazy talk, by the way. Um, 
And here's why. Every generation since the resurrection of Jesus thinks they're going to be the last generation. Do you see the signs? Like, yeah, everyone has for the last 2,000 years. And they're going to keep seeing them until Jesus does come back. And Jesus' own words, which also we see again here, hey, none of us know when, only the Father knows when. So quit trying to figure it out. In fact, I would say it this way. Um, What if, what if we are still the early church? What if 2,000 years later, you and I, we're still the early church? We, We don't know. In fact, I'd say it this way, um, what might happen if we recognize that, yes, it's true, we are closer today to Jesus coming back than we were yesterday. And guess what? Tomorrow, we'll be closer still, unless he does come back. We don't know when. And so the church in Sardis had kind of rested on their laurels, and they were going to just stay where they were. But what might happen if God's people live with this holy sense of urgency? And so there's kind of five imperatives that we see in this particular text. And here's what they are. Number one, wake up. Some of you are literally sleeping right now. Good for you. Um, I'm impressed. You don't have a headrest. Like, I, my neck would hurt thinking about it. But number two, strengthen what remains. So wake up. Strengthen what remains. Number three, remember what you have received and heard. Number four, obey what you have heard. And number five, repent. It's kind of the five imperatives we see all throughout this text. And here's what we see in verse 4. There's this kind of weird line about, like, our clothes and says it would be dressed in white. Well, here's why. Um, Sardis was a city of great wealth, right? I mentioned that, but also great fashion. It was the center of the wool trade in the ancient world, period. It's like if you wanted sweet clothes, this was the place you went. But it says that some have their, their clothes soiled. It would have mattered to them. And then it goes on to say that not only were your clothes soiled, but, but you'll be a day, right, when your clothes won't be soiled. We'll talk about what that is in just a second. But, but the people of Sardis were called to live a life that bared fruit. To be faithful to who God is because God was faithful to them. And so there's a few things we kind of pick up from the six, right? The good, here's what's good about this place. Uh, there were a few faithful people. There was a white robe they were invited to wear. In the ancient church, um, when you got baptized, um, actually baptized men and women separately for this very reason, um, you would go into the water naked. And then when you came out, they would give you a white robe. And so the white robe represented this idea that you had been cleansed from your sin, that you had been transformed, that you had been made new, that you had been born again as one of Jesus' followers, as his disciple, as a follower of Christ. And you had this new life to live. And so you'd be given a new white robe. And so he's saying, like, hey, some of you don't have soiled robes. Some of you, like, your baptism is still real and fresh and new. And God will honor that. And to some of you who, like, maybe you've soiled that thing, it's time to turn your life back around and trust him again. So that's the good, right? Um, The bad, the church was sleepwalking. I don't know if you ever experienced this, but my daughter used to have night terrors. Like, they're where your kid wakes up and they're just screaming bloody murder. The first couple times, by the way, scares you to death. I remember sprinting across the house, flinging her door open, like, only for her to realize she's still sleeping. In fact, she would often do it, get up, go to the bathroom, go back. We talked to her about it the next day. She had no idea what we were talking about. 
not a clue. Right? This idea we're sleepwalking, that we're oblivious to how we're actually living. We're not paying any attention. We don't know. Either we don't know because we don't care, or we don't know because we're not trying to know. And here's the other bad thing about the church. Jesus says, I don't see any evidence of your faith. And here's the last thing he says. If you don't change, you're going to be dead. Whether you're still alive or not, you're just dead. You and I have met people, maybe we are those people, we feel like we're dead, but yet we're still alive. And so what's he call us to? The action says, wake up. Strengthen what remains, repent. Right? Often in our tradition, we're out of what we call like the holiness tradition, this idea that we think God can so transform our hearts and minds and lives that we don't have to be who we used to be, that we can be made right or holy or good, that we don't have to continue to live in the sinful ways we did before. Even our temptations can be changed over time, right? Like that's the hope of it. We believe God can do such a work in us. The problem then is, in our tradition, sometimes we go, well, then you never have to repent again. Not true. This idea that when I find that I'm wandering in one direction, I have to repent, which means to like turn, turn, to change direction, to think differently, but I'm going to repent. So there are times we need to repent or think differently than we used to think. And then this last one, hold on to what we know is true. But here's what I want to say today that maybe for us needs to be something we hear. All throughout the book of Revelation, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the scriptures, We're invited to know the grace of God that comes to us as we are where we are, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've done. And maybe, just maybe, if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we have thought we've tried to be faithful, but we find ourselves spiritually dry or empty, feeling like when it comes to our spiritual life, we're in some desert, we're in some wasteland. We keep saying, God, where, where are you? Why do I not sense you? Why, why did there was, there was this moment where I had this great euphoric event where I came to know you in such a great way, and yet now I feel like you are absent from my life? Where are you? That's why Scott Daniels calls the, the spirit of this particular church the spirit of apathy, an apathetic church. Maybe you're going, where are you? There's a difference between being spiritually dry we are longing for God to speak in a way that you can hear and know and understand. That's called spiritual dryness. That happens to all of us at some season of life. Sometimes it's a long season. Sometimes it's short. Sometimes it happens multiple times. That is radically different than apathy. Apathy is, I don't really care. I'm good. Years ago, I prayed a prayer. Like, cool. I'm in, right? Like, that's all it took. I don't have to live. I can live however I want to live. But what might happen if God's people, for us, say we live as a people full of passion and purpose? If we're not careful, we can be so focused on the past or even the future that we can miss the present. There's a line I learned years ago. It's not mine. I wish it was because I'd be super smart if I wrote it. But in light of my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? In light of my past experiences, right, so we are recognizing the past, my current circumstances, where am I now, and my future hopes and dreams, what I hope for long-term, what is the wise thing to do? In other words, I'm going to live today keeping in mind what's happened before, where I currently am, but where I hope to go. We would make better decisions for all of us if we lived that way, right? You and I would make better decisions. 
Right? And I would say this way, it's why we talk about in the church, why we never want to marry the method, right, how we do something, but we do want to marry the message. Right, I love these words of Paul in Ephesians 5. He says this. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity. I don't know where you are today, but maybe, maybe you need to wake up. Right? Um, Reggie McNeil, as a, as a church missiologist, which basically means like he wants to look like for the church to be engaged in God's mission in the world. That's really it. And so he has these quotes. I'm going to share just a couple with you real quick. He says this. The Pharisees' evangelism strategy and the strategy of most people who have grown up in the church was, come and get it. In addition, they had contorted God's message to moralism. You people out there need to straighten up. Their message to people outside the Pharisee bubble was, become like us, translated, believe like us, dress like us, vote like us, act like us, like what we like, don't like what we don't like. If you become like us, jump through our cultural hoops and adopt ours, we will consider you for club membership. Instead, here's the call for us today. We need to go where people are already hanging out and be prepared to have conversations with them about the great love of our lives. This will require our shifting our efforts from growing churches into transforming communities. The church was never intended to exist for itself. The church was always meant to be God's unique people who gathered together in such a way that they would then go be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever we may go, recognizing there is no place we go that he is not already present. Here's the challenge for you and I today. Um, We don't get to choose our reputation. We don't get to choose our reputation. I wish we did, right? I wish I got to choose exactly what people thought of me. It's not how that works. But we do get to choose how we're going to live. We do get to choose what values have the highest priority in our life. We do get to choose the kind of person we are becoming. We get to choose those things. And so the question for you and I is this. Are we becoming people who look and sound and act like Jesus? It is really easy to give lip service to the importance of Jesus in our lives and much more difficult to live for him. Maybe, just maybe, you and I need to step out of our apathetic faith at some level. Maybe we need to recognize it's easy for us to get sucked into things in life that aren't really life-giving. It's really easy to get sucked into things that don't really have a value long-term. But what might happen if we recognize there's a God whose graciousness comes to us and says, hey, who you have been, what you have been doing does not have to be your future. In fact, it doesn't even have to be your present reality. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion and we'll invite you to come and we'll take communion here at least once a month. It's one of two sacraments that we recognize in the church, right? It's communion and baptism. It's remembrance of the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup and he poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He said, take and drink. 
is an outward act of what we believe God does, an inward work in us. It's an outward act that symbolizes the grace that he extends to you and I. And so today, as you come to the table, maybe you need to go, God, I've been living in such an apathetic way. I don't really care enough. I don't really care. I know I need to wake up. Or maybe today you're going, God, I feel like I am spiritually dry. Or maybe today, you're saying, God, I don't feel like I'm good enough. With all that I have done, with who I have been, there's no way the grace that you offer, that your son Jesus died for me, there's no way that's real for me because of who I have been and what I have done. But here's the coolest part about coming to know Jesus. He invites you and I to his table. He says, yeah, you're invited. We come to this table, and what it symbolizes is this, that our willingness to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, I want to live my life for you. Maybe I haven't been who I wanted to be. Maybe you're calling me to something greater, whatever it might be, I want to step into that. Right? And here's the crazy thing. This is one of those things where just trying harder doesn't work. I mean, sure, we can try harder, like, right, try harder, be better. Cool. Do those things. Those are good. They're not bad, but but they in and of themselves are not sufficient. It is purely gift of God and his grace that comes to us and says, hey, you can keep trying harder and you can keep trying to be better, but here's what I say to you. Rest in me. Receive my grace. You cannot earn this. You can choose to reflect it and and embrace it, but you can't earn it. Right, well, two of my favorite characters in all the New Testament are Paul and Peter, and here's why. Um, Peter is impetuous and does all kinds of crazy stuff, and he's like just jumps in and, and says dumb stuff, which I've been known to say some dumb stuff occasionally. And, and Peter just is like, yeah, I'm going to do this for Jesus. And then he's like, ooh, yeah, not really. Right? He betrays him. He's like, oh, you follow him. No, no, I don't follow that guy. I don't even know who he is. And I sympathize with Peter because I know there have been moments in my life where I've said the same thing in some way, shape, or form. And there's Paul who lived a life where he thought he was doing the right thing for God, right? He was convinced he was doing the right thing for God. And he was even leading other Christians to be killed. Because his encounter with Jesus, these are two men who have reputations, right, that are not that great. Paul was the murderer of Christians. Peter was a guy who denied Jesus was who he said he was. And yet, these two men repented, turned their lives around, trusted Jesus with all of themselves. And today, we talk about them as pillars in the history of the church. I don't care what you have done or where you have been or how far from God you may feel. But today, God is saying to you and I, come to my table. Know my grace. Maybe you felt like you were asleep, but I'm telling you today, wake up and come to know the depth of my love for you.